Morning. Last time I preached, I told you that in preparation for my sermon, I went to um, Google uh, and I typed the phrase, I want to be accepted. And if you were here, you, you, you may remember uh, that I said that. Uh, what do you think that I did this time in preparation for my sermon, or uh, as part of my preparation for my sermon? Any, any guess? Wow. <laughs> yes. I wanted to do something that would make me feel more tech savvy, as people say nowadays. So I went to ChatGPT, actually, and I asked it to write an uh, illustration uh, about a blender. Do you want to hear what ChatGPT came up with? Do, do I have everybody's attention now? Because everybody talks about GPT, uh, ChatGPT here as probably no any other church. Um, okay, so um, here is what ChatGPT uh, came up with. Listen, once upon a time, there was a blender named Betsy. <laughs> Betsy was a profound, uh, I'm sorry, proud and hardworking blender who loved anything more than blending fruits, vegetables, and ice into delicious smoothies, juice, and shakes. She had a sleek design and a powerful motor, and she was always ready to tackle any blending, blending task that came her way. One day, Betsy was feeling particularly eager to start her day of blending, blending I'm sorry, um, and Betsy waited for her owner to uh, turn her on, but nothing happened. She waited and waited, but still nothing. As it turned out, Betsy had been so excited to start her day that she didn't even notice that she was still unplugged. This is chat GPT. Once her owner realized the problem, he plugged Betsy in and she sprang to life, wiring and blending to her heart's content. From that day on, Betsy learned that even the most hardworking an efficient blender needs to be properly connected to the power source in order to do its job. Lesson learned, even the most advanced machine is useless without the basics, like a power source. Okay, that was enough about ChatGPT. The point of my illustration and why I, I did that, it was actually to get your attention as as you already know that, right? Because I wanted to illustrate something that is deeply profound, is fundamental for the Christian life. It is actually fundamental for you as a Christian. And this truth is actually addressed in the text that we're gonna be meditating uh, on today. So I'm gonna ask my brother Josh Sawyer to come up and read the uh, scripture for us today. All right, this is from the book that we love, Romans 6, 5 to 11. <clears throat> For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Josh. So in chapter 5, we, um, well, we learned that Paul talked about one aspect of our salvation, and that is justification, and we also consider some benefits of justification. In chapter 6, the chapter that we are considering today, Paul talks about another aspect of our salvation, and this is our sanctification. But before actually he talking about our sanctification uh, in itself, as a way of introducing the topic, he would illustrate a more fundamental, a, a more vital principle um, in the Christian life, even more fundamental than justification in Christ by faith alone. Okay, so uh, this topic is union with Christ. So if union with Christ is even more foundational for our Christian life, uh, let us then consider uh, what is union with Christ. Well, the Bible illustrates union with Christ in so many ways. If you read the Bible, you will see from the Old Testament, basically, um, you will see baptism, you will see marriage, you will see the tabernacle, you will see the temple, you will see uh, the, the, the vine and the branches, uh, you will see also the idea of a family, Christ is our elder brother. Um, and all these illustrations are meant to help us grasp how close and how intimate is the relationship that Christ um, and the believer um, enjoy. Theologians uh, talk about three aspects or distinctions in our union with Christ. Uh, Professor Gaffin from Westminster calls the first one, the first distinction, the predestinarian union with Christ. I'm just going to call it eternal union with Christ. And eternal union with Christ refers to the elect as being contemplated and included in eternity past. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 4, uh, that God chose us in Christ. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And the key phrase here is in Christ. Now, the second um, aspect of our union with Christ is the historical redemptive union with Christ. And I'm going to call this one just historical union. And this one refers to believers being contemplated as one with Christ right at the moment of his death and his resurrection. Or to use John Murray's uh, language, the union that took place when Christ accomplished our salvation. And then the third one is the applicatory union with Christ, which I'm just going to call the personal union with Christ. 
And this one refers to the aspect of our union with Christ when the Holy Spirit applied to us the salvation that Christ accomplished for us by working faith in us and uniting us thereby to the second person of the Trinity. So this means, uh, this aspect of our union with Christ refers to the possession of our salvation, okay? So union with Christ is also called a mystical union, and it's called this way because it involves some mystery, okay? We can't fully explain how it is that you right now that are sitting on these chairs are united to Christ who is sitting on heaven, Okay, we can't fully understand how that happens. So in that sense, it's mystical, but it's also spiritual because our union with Christ is not ontological. We do not become literally Christ or, or we, we don't lose our personality when we get united to Christ. It's a, a spir uh, spiritual union. Now, the text that we are considering today, Romans 6, especially verse 1 through 11, refers to the second one, to the second aspect of our union with Christ. That is the historical union with Christ. Things that are already um, true of the believer. Things that already happen to you if you believe in Christ. So let us now then consider um, what is true about the believers but virtue of their being united to Christ. So look at the text, and the first thing that I want us to notice from our text, or in our text, is the word united. The word united means grow together or planted together. John Calvin translated it as engrafted into, um, although some people would say that that's not the right meaning of the word. Um, um, I hope that you will see why he translated it this way later. And the war expresses the, intimate, the intimacy of our union with Christ, the closeness of our union with the second person of the Trinity. Now, this planted together involves both the death and the resurrection of Christ. Not only the death, but also the resurrection of Christ. The two events are distinct, but inseparable. We see this uh, that, that these two events are inseparable. First, in the phrase in, in our text, we shall certainly be united with him. The future tense of this, we certainly, or we shall certainly be united to him, shouldn't be understood as something that, we, that, that will happen in the future, but as the expected consequence of dying with Christ, Okay. John Murray again says that this is an indicative of certainty. So it refers to something already true of the believer. If you are a believer, this is you. The believer already died and rose again at the moment Christ died and rose again. This is historical union. You were there when Christ was dying for you. Now, the second uh, reason why these two events are inseparable is that both events, dying and then uh, uh, rising again, took place in the one person of Jesus Christ. It, it wasn't that one person, was, uh, uh, one person died and another person uh, was raised from the dead. It was the same 
person. So in both, uh, both events took place in the one person of the Son. So in other words, when you, get, uh, when you are united to Christ, you get, you get united to the whole Christ. You get the whole Christ uh, for you, not just some parts of it or not just part of his life. The whole of his life is counted uh, to you. Now, uh, uh, an application here for, for us today is consider the pattern of the life of Christ. Uh, what, what are some practical applications of, of this? Well, for, for, for Christ and for the believers, death comes first and then resurrection. This is important. This is not just uh, an uh, arbitrary pattern. Uh, death comf, uh, comes first and then resurrection. That means that sin has to be killed first so that then you can be sanctified. Okay? It does not work uh, the reverse. Okay? Uh, you do not get united to Christ because you are sanctified. You are sanctified because you are united to him. This is the principle. You need to be connected to the power source to function properly. This is a, a, simple, a simple and basic principle that can be interchangeable. If you reverse the order, you will become a legalist. Okay? When I lived in Texas, one of my friends told me, understanding the grace of the gospel came me from living leaving the church. And the reason is because he grew up in a very legalistic environment that deeply hurt him. And like him, so many Christians have been uh, hurt um, in the church. They said, if Christianity is just do this and do that, they said, this is boring and I can't, I don't have the power to do it. And that's actually, that's actually right. The problem with legalism is that it ignores the source that gives you the power to live a holy and sanctified life. You need, again, to be connected to the source of power in order to function properly. Now, the second thing that I want us to notice in our text is the twofold purpose of the believer's union in Christ's death. That is, the destruction of the body, number one, and two, the liberation from slavery. Okay, this is the twofold purpose of uh, the union or our union in Christ's death. Now, let me expand on these two purposes. Paul explains that in Christ's crucifixion, our old self was crucified. Hodge says that for, uh, if we want to ask uh, what is the old self or the old man, Hodge says, our old man is our corrupt nature, the native depravity of man. And then John Murray in the same says, he says that the old man is the self, the ego, the unregenerate man. In other words, then, our corrupted nature was crucified with Christ um, at the moment he was crucified. Now, when I say that our, our nature, our, our corrupted nature was crucified, I'm not talking about another person apart from you. 
It's you. You're, you're all men. It's you. It's not just a part of, of you. Now, he goes on to explain what is the first purpose um, for the crucifixion of our old self. And as I said, one is that the, that the body of sin may be destroyed. Now, in our translation, it says uh, another thing, right? But I'm using the idea that, actually, that Paul actually has in mind. So, in order to understand this, uh, what is, let me ask, what is the body of sin? Well, the body of sin, again, reading uh, Hodge, he says that the body of sin is just another name to refer to the old man, to the, to the um, old self. To, uh, our, so for him, it means our sinful, carnal nature. And you will remember that last uh, Sunday, right? uh, when, when Sam was preaching, he mentioned that sometimes, um, uh, he, he, he mentioned that the body of sin, but by, by saying that, Paul here is talking about the sinful nature not our human bodies. You remember that, that, that Sam said something like that? Now, John Murray takes it to mean, actually, the body of sin, takes it to mean the physical organism, okay? The human body. But he says that it refers to the body as conditioned and controlled by sin, Okay, he says it refers actually to the body, the physical organism, but to, to the body as conditioned and controlled by sin. Okay, I, I, I just put two giants in our tradition, you know, uh, against one another, John, uh, uh, John Murray and Hodge. Um, but whatever the, the right position is, the point continues to be the same. Yeah, whether it means our corrupt nature or our human bodies as conditioned and controlled by our sin, the point is that dying with Christ breaks our relationship, makes, makes, a, makes a break uh, between us and sin. Okay? There is an unbreachable breach between us and sin. So Paul would say, well, what's the question here? How could you then continue living in sin? Now, the second purpose of the, uh, of, the uh, of the crucifixion of the old self is the believer's liberation from slavery. Our text says, so that we would not longer be enslaved to sin. And here Paul personifies sin and speaks of it as a person who dominates or presses, makes demands, and subdues the unbeliever. So when the oppressive master says, I want you to go open your computer and watch porn, basically, the unbeliever has no other option but to obey him. That's what Paul is saying. That's the degree of the power of sin in the unregenerated heart. But Paul says, that's not you. You have the option because you have died with Christ. Now you have the option not to sin because you are not a slave of sin anymore. And then the reason in verse 7 is that the death sets us free from sin. The relationship between us 
and sin got terminated because of our death in Christ. Now, what are the implications, some implications for us, some theological implications for us? John Murray says, the implications of our union with Christ makes, make impossible the inference that we may continue in sin so that grace may abound. Now, remember that Paul is dealing here with the antinomians, okay? Those who would take the law of God and would say, well, we are just going to live however we like because we are not under the law anymore, okay? So Paul is dealing with that here, but he is basically explaining the one who has been united to Christ may, may reason this way for some time. But what he is basically saying is that at the end or in the end of the day, that person will get it. And because he has been given power, he uh, will um, realize that this is not uh, in accordance to Christ. Okay. Um, the last thing that I want us to notice in our text is the likeness of our union in Christ's resurrection. Look, in verse 8, Paul repeats what he said in verse 5. And he does it because he wants to emphasize it, but he also does it because he wants to focus on, the, uh, on, the, on Christ's resurrection. And he says three things about Christ's resurrection. The first thing that he says is that he lives forever. Second, he says that he lives without relationship to sin. And three, he says that he lives to God. Now, these three things are important because these three, uh, three things are also true of the believer. So let us consider uh, each one of them. First, he lives forever. Christ lives forever. The text says that he will never die again. And then um, Hebrew 7.27 says that that Christ died once for all when he offered up himself. His sacrifice was accepted. Number two, he lives uh, free from the dominion of death. Uh, Our text says death no longer has dominion over him. And the reason why death has no longer dominion over Christ is because he died to sin. Now, notice that the phrase die to sin is used to refer to Christ in verse 10. And then it is used to refer to the Christian, to the believer in verse 11. So both Christ and the believer both died to sin. But the phrase Die to sin has a different meaning for each one of them. Because when we die to sin, it refers that we die to our personal indwelling sin. But when it, uh, it talks about Christ, it refers that Christ died um, carrying the burden, uh, burden of his people, which he bore upon, uh, upon the cross, as John Murray puts it. Now, 
The third thing is that, that uh, he says about Christ's um, resurrection is that he now lives to God. Now, this phrase reminds us, uh, remind us of Paul's own uh, or Paul's description of himself in Galatians 2.20. And it, it's a verse that we memorized when we were little or when we were kids. I have been crucified with Christ Pay attention to that part. I have been crucified with Christ. That is the part of the death of Christ, basically. And then he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That is the part of Christ's resurrection. And then he adds, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. In other words, Paul lives to Christ. The parallel, uh, so the parallel is that Paul died to sin and now he lives to God in the same way that Christ died to sin and he now lives to God as the text says. But the part that I want to emphasize here is that Paul says, the life I now live in the flesh. Listen to that. The life that, I, that now I live in the flesh. And I want to emphasize that because this is the same condition in which the Son of God now continues to live. Now the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, after taking on himself flesh, he continues to live um, his life in his human nature. And as a human he lives now to God after being resurrected. But the phrase uh, uh, lives to God also reminds us of Hebrew 7.25, where Christ is said that he li always lives to make intercession for us. So if we put the two things together, we conclude that Christ in his flesh, in his human nature, he intercedes for us and works on our, for our good in our, in our behalf, in, uh, excuse me, and on our, uh, our uh, well, my gosh, <laughs> on our behalf. Got it. <laughs> he lives a life, Christ, that is a never-ending life. A life as a human that is completely and fully devoted to God. I love how Hodge puts it. The result, and this is describing uh, Hodge describing the work of Christ in the present. The result of his living is the communication and the preservation of divine life to all who are connected with him. Right at this moment, the work of Christ, the human that is enthroned in heaven, he is communicating his life to you because you are connected, you are united to him. His life is a perpetual life and fully devoted to God. And the implication is this, you can also by the power of the union that you enjoy with Christ, live a life that is fully devoted to God. This 
in other words, is the power of resurrection life that you now can enjoy. This means that in you, in the core now of who you are, the resurrection life principle operates from heaven to you. From heaven to you. Christ communicates his life to you. And when he does that, he sets you free from the dominion of sin. And then now you can live a life that is fully devoted to God. What is true of Christ is also true of yourself. And this is so if you are connected to the source of power. My dear friend, I pray that this morning, if you haven't experienced union with Christ, I pray that the Holy Spirit will bring that new life to you, that he will use his word to unite, to unite you to the Son, to the second person of the Trinity, so that you can also live in the power of resurrection life. Now, in conclusion to this section, Paul, in verse 11, says, So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you also must consider yourself dead uh, to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, the word consider here is pastor's son's favorite word in Romans 4. If you remember, he preached a few Sundays ago his sermon, The Reckoning. Do you remember? You should be able to remember it because he mentioned that word like a hundred times. So that's how we know that that's his favorite word. <laughs> the Reckoning. The Reckoning. Something like that, Sam, right? Now, that word is, is interesting because that's the same word that Paul is using here to say, consider yourself. In other words, it's reckon yourself. Okay? And it's, it's, as Sam said, uh, that day is the, coming from the word logismai, from, from which we also get the term uh, logic. And while there are a few things that we can say about uh, this way that Paul is concluding this section. In the first place, Paul gives, um, uh, uh, this is the first, actually, this is the first command Paul gives in this section. It's the first command that Paul gives in this section. Um, from verse 1 through verse 11, Paul only addresses the indicatives of the Christian life. What is true about being a Christian is, is what he has been explaining. Paul didn't, listen, listen to me, Paul didn't command the believers in Rome, in Rome to unite themselves to Christ. That's not what he's saying. Because union with Christ is not a command to be obeyed. Union with Christ is not a command to be obeyed, but a undeserved grace granted and given by God in his mercy. The one who performs the work of uniting us to Christ is the Holy Spirit, the third person 
of the Trinity. Now, the command to reckon oneself or yourself as dead to sin and alive to God, this is the second thing, flows from our union with Christ, which means that the imperatives of the Christian life are grounded first and foremost on who you are in Christ and you being united to Christ. One more thing that I can say about, we can say about this is that union with Christ produces a new mentality, a new way of thinking about yourself, a new way that you can address yourself in a proper, in a proper way. This is an imperative, it's a command to address Christ-centered self-reckoning. And this is not positive thinking. This is not uh, fake it until you make it. This is not if you think about it and you concentrate and you say it and say it and think and think and think about it, it will, it will happen. This is not what Paul is saying here. Paul is commanding you and us as a church to do gospel-centered self-assessment. Now you can think about yourself in a proper way. What do you think about yourself, my brother, my friend, my sister? Paul is commanding us here then to think about how you become, in other words, what you already are in Christ. So how do you become like Christ? Well, you become like Christ by thinking about Christ, by contemplating Christ, by beholding his beauty. That's how you become like Christ. At the beginning of my sermon, I started to describe what union with Christ is because I wanted us to really have a better grasp of what, what Paul is talking about here. Let me continue uh, uh, saying the following thing. To say, listen, to say that you are united to Christ is to say that all his saving benefits now belong to you. Now those benefits, whatever the benefits the millions and, and billions of blessings that you and I can, can have in Christ, now those belong to you. But most importantly, it means that Christ himself becomes yours. Christ himself is yours. That is, you don't receive justification, sanctification as isolated, uh, isolated items that you can enjoy for yourself. You don't receive those items separately. Any of the benefits of salvation can be enjoyed without the benefactor. You have all that, all those blessings, because you are in the person of Christ. That is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30. It says, because of him, and he's referring to God, because of God, you are in Christ. You are in Christ who became to us. I love how he puts it. Who became to us 
wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That means that Christ does, uh, does not only give you wisdom. He is your wisdom. You need wisdom? Make sure you have Christ. Christ not only gives you righteousness, he is your righteousness. God not, not only gives you sanctification or makes you a, a sanctified person, he is your sanctification. That's what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 1.30. And listen, he, no, uh, no, uh, Christ doesn't only give you hope. He is your hope. As the song we are going to sing after my sermon, you can now say, He is my living hope. Christ is my living hope. Listen, Christ, my dear friends, Himself, Christ Himself is the greatest benefit in our salvation, of our, of our salvation. Christ is the greatest benefit of our salvation. You see, in the gospel of God, God does not offer you something. In the gospel of God, God offers you someone. God offers you the person of himself. For you to rejoice in it, to enjoy it, to delight in him. That's the beauty of being saved. That's, that's why salvation is amazing. Because you not only have all the riches and the wealth of the, of, of the person, but you actually get to enjoy the person. That's what is beautiful about the gospel. And that's why the prosperity, prosperity gospel is so offensive to God because it reduces God to things, to money, to clothes, to looks. That's offensive to God. So how do you enjoy your, um, how do you become Christ? Well, Sinclair Ferguson illustrates um, the delight and the joy that we have in Christ using the metaphor of marriage. And this is one of the metaphors, one of the illustrations that the Bible uses it. But he says, how husbands or wives enjoy their marriage? Um, uh, he asks the question. And he says, well, husbands don't delight or enjoy their marriage, but looking at the marriage certificate. And they say, Wow. My marriage, wow, my signature, you see, like a star. <laughs> they enjoy their marriage by being and enjoying the person to whom they were married. That's how we become like Christ. That's how we, we become like the second person of the Trinity by enjoying our union and communion with him. And more specifically, the person of Christ. Not so much the union. I've been talking about the union with Christ, but my goal is to get you um, enjoy the person of Christ. I'm not married yet, I'm still single. 
But when I think about my fiance, I think about the things that I like about her. Her eyes, oh man. I love looking at her eyes. And I'm not thinking about, um, you know, that now the relationship that we have is engagement itself. I mean, I'm not just looking at the moment of the engagement. I enjoy her person, her eyes. That's what we are supposed to do also with Christ. And some of you may say, hey, not, not everybody is married. <laughs> well, the Bible uses many ways to illustrate our union with Christ. Right? The branches and the, and the vine and the, branch, and the branches. But one of them is the Lord's Supper. It's welcoming you to the table where we can actually enjoy being fed with his body and his blood. So let us celebrate. Let us find power to live the life that glorifies him. Please stand.